0: I think development is at its most fundamental about potential. At the core also is people. So we have seven and a half billion people around the world. They're in different countries, different socioeconomic groups, different situations in their lives. But at the core, we have a baseline agreement that every single person is equal.
1: I'm your host Adam Met, and today we're talking about the United Nations and development. At first glance, this may seem really dry, but at its core, this episode is about people and it's about potential. We talk with UN experts from all over the world, from big picture approaches, all the way down to a very interesting blockchain chocolate project. A quick reminder that we're planting a tree for every person who subscribes to this podcast. So make sure to hit that subscribe button. And without further ado, up first is J.D. DeCruz, the Special Advisor, Strategic Planning and Innovation at the UNDP on Planet Reimagined. So on this episode, we want to kind of demystify the United Nations and, in particular, the United Nations Development Programme. So to start, what is the UNDP? Hey, Adam. um,
2: The UNDP, the United Nations Development Programme, is the agency set up about 55 years ago to be the custodian of the idea of sustainable human development. So we're the agency whose task it is to try and bring together the different pieces that allow countries and communities to develop in a sustainable way to make the lives of their citizens better. And obviously that's a very broad mandate and it's a mandate that connects into and works with the mandates of a whole host of other United Nations agencies and other parts of the system. But in a sense, our role is to try and hold the idea of what development means and to be able to work with countries and communities to move that forward in an integrated kind of a way. So that brings me perfectly into my next question.
1: What does development mean from the perspective of the United Nations? <laughs>
2: okay. Let me start with a with a bit of a personal view on that. I was born and raised in Malaysia. I'm 50 years old now, so I'm a bit of a middle-aged pokey. But um, I lived through the entire period where Malaysia as a country went from being relatively underdeveloped. I grew up in a, a time when we had electricity, but it cut out very regularly. We had schools, but they were okay, not really fantastic. The country had the basics in place to live on a day-to-day basis. But over the last 50 years, I watched the country evolve in tremendous ways build new industries, build better government services, educate and and take care of populations better, increase lives and incomes, so that the people who lived in that country had the opportunity to do a lot more with themselves. And I guess I'm, in a sense, an example of that because I'm a kid from a small town on the east coast of Malaysia who now lives and works in New York, helping the UN development system think about where the idea of development needs to go in the next couple of generations. So the whole idea of development is basically that. It's how do you create the conditions that allow individuals, households, communities to be able to, to have as much potential as possible to be who they want to be. And that might sound a little bit aspirational or cheesy, but it is a very real question. It's a question that governments, citizens all around the world ask themselves every day. What are the things we need to put in place? What do we need to prioritize and invest in so that our people and our, and our children and future generations can live up to their full capacity within a society and a planet that is still sustainable. So that's the big ask. That's what development means to us.
1: So the global approach now to development is really focused on sustainable development. And over the course of this season of this podcast, we've talked a lot about the Sustainable Development Goals as they apply to many different types of people, many different countries and many different industries. Okay. How does the UNDP use the Sustainable Development Goals as a framework for their approach to development?
2: So, you know, the cool thing about the Sustainable Development Goals and the 2030 agenda within which they're framed is twofold. One, it's the first time we've had an idea or a framework, a vision for development that covers all the different dimensions. So it's not just development in the sense of ever-growing GDP and higher incomes. It's also development that's sustainable. It's development that lives within the boundaries of this fragile planet we live on. It's development that's inclusive. That means it's development that ensures everyone benefits from it. Every country, every citizen, um, every community in the world. And it's development that's universal because in 2015, when the 2030 Agenda was set up, Amazingly, this was pretty much the only point in recent history when every nation in the world got together and signed up to and committed to one agenda. And even within the systems of the UN, that very rarely happens. But there was this moment in 2015 when every country in the world, every community in the world said, we want to all try and work towards this integrated idea of what development means. And that framework is something that, that we cherish and promote and protect a lot because it is really a unique moment where we all said, let's build a vision of development for the world that applies to everybody, that appeals to everybody, that captures within it all the major elements of what development actually means. Now, it's not perfect. There's lots of ways in which it could perhaps have been framed differently. There's arguments about whether some elements should be emphasized more than others, but as a core idea of how the entire collective of humanity can work together to move forward, it's a pretty amazing achievement actually.
1: It is amazing and I study human rights and even on the human rights side, there has never been a time where every single country has come together and said we agree on this one mission. So to have the SDGs as something that every country came together and said this is something important that we all believe in and can stand behind and work towards is is absolutely incredible. Yeah. So we have 10 years left now in order to achieve them and this is called the decade of action. Yeah. What is the game plan and what what's new about right now that we need to start working on to achieve these goals by 2030?
2: Well, I guess the most obvious what's new is over the last six or nine months or so, we've had this thing you may have come across called a COVID pandemic. And that's been quite a shock to the system because, as you know, and we see this in every country in which we work, not just the epidemic itself, but The things that have resulted from it, the disruptions to our way of living, the disruptions to our economies, our livelihoods, these have been a tremendous shock to our approach to the SDGs. And I guess you could argue quite a setback for the progress we're making. But I think there's also a deeper element to that, which I think is important to reach into, which is the fact that an epidemic like the COVID pandemic could result in such a tremendous shock could devastate lives, incomes, social structures, uh, the fabric of communities so deeply, points to the fact that we need a much more thoughtful and integrated approach to what we mean by development. It shows us that in many cases, the fabric we need to be able to deal with shocks like this has not been strong enough. And it shows us actually that, that it's impossible to think about responding to a health crisis without also thinking about what the economic implications are, the social implications, and vice versa. So a big part of what we try to do, we struggle to do in UNDP, is to find ways to frame the fact that development is an intrinsically integrated challenge. While there's a lot of work, that's incredibly valuable work that happens through governments, through other organizations around individual uh, elements of this? More jobs and better jobs, um, environmental sustainability, taking care of health issues. These things in the modern world are so deeply interconnected that you have to have a way to understand how they link into each other and be able to respond when a shock in one part of that system cascades to others. So coming back to the question of the decade of action, I think the real challenge for us over the next 10 years is collectively to understand how these pieces tie together and and make sure we identify the elements that are most critical to enable us to sustain progress. And I would argue a lot of those elements are around really fundamental things like can we build the systems of government, the structures of society, that really reinforce the fact that we're all in this together, that really reinforce that you can't really progress as a town or a household or an individual If you're not making sure that the people around you that you're intimately connected with also have the opportunity to progress. And that's the biggest lesson for me from the COVID pandemic that we need to take into this next decade of action.
1: Everything you just said points towards a mix between large-scale approaches to development and localized approaches to development. And on the rest of this episode, we're going to be talking with some incredible people that have very focused, localized projects But before we get there, I want to ask you a question about this balance. You know, the UNDP has offices in nearly every country in the world. How do you go about balancing the big picture questions of global sustainable development with local community approaches that need very targeted responses to specific problems?
2: I think that balancing between the global perspective and that very well-situated, deeply informed local action. That, to me, honestly, is the magic of UNDP that attracted me to this organization. And we talk about it being an organization that is simultaneously very globally connected and very locally rooted. What does that mean? It means a couple of different things. The problems of development that we talk about, I mean, they are large in scale. But what we've learned over the last few years is the solutions tend to only work when they are an accumulation of individual and collective actions from the bottom up. So you can frame the the problem in very large ways. And we do that, you know, the climate emergency, the growing inequality in the world, uh, the need to create large scale jobs for the next generation of kids coming into the workforce. But there are no major magic wand type solutions for this that can come in from the top the days when you could think about development as something that gets solved by a Marshall Plan, like you had after the Second World War, things like that, that really doesn't work anymore. And so what we realize is we need to be an organization that finds, connects, scales, lifts up a whole spectrum of local actions to be able to solve these big challenges. And so the kind of examples that I think um, you guys will be discussing in the rest of this episode, talking to friends and colleagues of mine in the system, those are instances of pieces we are building from the ground up, and our role in UNDP is very much to understand how these connect to each other, and also very importantly to be the platform through which people who are working on these individual solutions on the ground can connect to each other, share, and scale up. So I know you'll be talking to our colleagues in Ecuador about a particular um, initiative around chocolate and blockchain. Yes, and you'll you'll get into that in a minute. But be aware also when you hear that story. That as a result of that work in Ecuador around chocolate, we've now got teams who are rethinking how we approach fisheries management in the Pacific. We've got teams re-looking at how agriculture supply chains are working in India. Because we have a network that allows that insight, that work from a small local group in Ecuador to disseminate around the world and inspire lots of other action in the context that makes sense for those countries and communities. That's the magic of what we do, I think.
1: That's fantastic. I want to push back a little bit on this, because yes. this, this localized approach, I completely agree that it gives a community perspective to understand exactly what they need in order to succeed in development. Yeah. However, how do you see local organizations, governments, coalitions coming together at that kind of middle level that are either helping propel what the local communities are doing or you know, kind of stopping what the local communities are trying to do? Where does the UN relate to those kind of
2: intermediaries? So that's the other dimension, I guess, which is um, a value we bring into this conversation. A tremendous amount of our work on a day-to-day basis in countries is with governments at the national level, at the local level. It's with the organizational structures that connect individual action on the ground international systems into the global system. So the other part of our work, I guess in some respects you could say the less sexy part of our work, is also figuring out how you build the institutions, the structures in societies that allow people to be able to exhibit the kind of creativity and, and initiative and action we just talked about. So we do a lot of work working with governments to think about how you create policies for managing the environment, for managing jobs, for ensuring that people have access to the tools of governance, you know, democratic processes, access to justice and rule of law, all those things that enable individual action to happen as well. Because you're right, Adam, if you don't get that middle tier right, the ability of people on the ground themselves to to connect and share and scale up to solve big problems is is very constrained. So there is a deeper layer in the middle as well, which is a big part of what our teams do on a day-to-day basis, even if it's not always as visible as the the ground action or for the big national and global commitments
1: definitely something we talk a lot about on this podcast is the idea of responsibility and this kind of puzzle that you're putting together of global responsibility individual responsibility corporate governmental civil society and trying to find how big each of these pieces ought to be in each different idea in each different development context And so I feel like the UNDP really goes in and helps to frame what that puzzle looks like and helps to kind of be the arbiter and put it together.
2: Yes, I think a big part of our role, and I like how you framed that, is to to help the people we work with understand what that puzzle looks like. I wouldn't so much say an arbiter. We don't tend to come in and try to determine what the solutions are. If you work and talk with our people on the ground, um, like the others we have on the podcast today, A lot of what we tend to do is to try and connect people together, to build the spaces where with, for instance, our government colleagues, we can have an honest conversation about the gaps they see in their own systems and their capacities and how we can bring in solutions to help, or also an honest and sort of high-trust conversation that says, you need to create a space so that these segments of your population can also have a voice in this conversation. Now, whether you're talking about segmentation on the basis of gender making sure that women's voices are heard, which is a challenge in some countries, whether you're talking about segmentation on the basis of ethnic background or sexual orientation. So a big part of it is also working in a constructive, but sometimes a bit provocative way with our counterparts. Say, hey, guys, if you want to get this right, there are these pieces you need to bring into the puzzle as well. And maybe we can help you create the space to do that. Fantastic. I so appreciate you
1: taking the time today, and I know that this background on what the UN and UNDP in particular does uh, in these all of these local contexts will really help to frame the rest of our conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time.
2: A real pleasure, Adam. Thank you very much. And I'm also looking forward to hearing the conversations you have with the other colleagues you've got on the line. We do some really amazing work on the ground that I'm tremendously proud of. So I really appreciate the opportunity for us to share that with you and and looking forward to seeing how the rest of the discussion goes. Up next, we have Matilda Mort,
1: the United Nations Development Representative in Ecuador. She's working on a really interesting project combining blockchain technology and chocolate. So Matilda, in Ecuador, on the ground, what is your role with the UNDP on a day-to-day basis?
3: In Ecuador, in particular, we have a very large environmental portfolio. We work a lot in the Amazonian rainforest with a focus on not only environmental protection and climate change, but also support to indigenous communities in the field. You name it, we do it. Gender violence. No, it's so interesting. I love it.
1: It really does run the gamut that makes it all the more interesting for what we are gonna talk about today, the marriage of two things that you don't normally think about going together. It's, we're gonna be talking about chocolate today. So there are many global issues, obviously, in the world, and you mentioned a bunch of them, but in Ecuador, you found a way to use chocolate to address things like poverty and inequality. Can you tell us a little bit about the other bar?
3: Yes, absolutely. So I would say that the first objective of this chocolate is that it's, it's not for profit, it's for radical equality. It's it's an equal equality sign here. So what do we mean by this radical equality? One of the objectives is to try to have the profits staying within the country and also raising the income for local producers. So we're improving the livelihoods of local farmers and also ensuring that the pr- production of the chocolate is done within the country so that part of the value chain stays within the country. So that is one of the objectives. Another one is, of course, uh, uh, promoting sustainable production practices. This cacao is made in the Amazon, in in an Ecuadorian region of the Amazon called Zamora Chinchipe, which is known for its high quality chocolate. Um, And I'm going to make a little technical note here because I'm I'm learning a lot about chocolate these days also. Uh, So 95% of the uh, cacao production in the world is what is called bulk chocolate, and only 5% is something called uh, fine cacao or flavor cacao, in in Spanish uh, cacao fino de aroma. And uh, the birthplace of this excellent, high-quality cacao is actually Ecuador, the the genetic birthplace of this. Yes. So here you have uh, fantastic chocolate producers and chocolate brands that are taking advantage of this cacao. And this cacao is also, of course, exported to gourmet chocolate brands in in Europe and and elsewhere. What we're doing with this production, I was mentioning the the second objective of of this, uh, which is the sustainable production. So we are using... Organic cacao from an association in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And we're also promoting the conservation of the rainforest uh, and the conservation of the tree cover that is needed in the Amazon. And I think that is definitely something that, unfortunately, is having a lot of attention these days due to the fires that are well, that are still going on and have been for for many years actually. So this is also a way of maintaining the forest cover and uh, supporting uh, climate change objectives globally. Um, Then another objective we have is that we connect consumers and producers. Uh, So the the whole idea here is that the, the consumer has the power to change the market and, and this is a way of connecting the consumer directly through the value chain to the first mile of the value chain, directly with the consumer. So when you open up this, this chocolate package, you have a little token here. And uh, whoever bought this chocolate can uh, scan the token and then he or she can decide if they want to reinvest this token in, in buying more chocolate. So he or she's reinvesting in, in themselves, but at the same time, they would be reinvesting in, the, in this value chain. So it goes back to the producers. But the other use uh, the person can do with this token is to put it into tree planting. So for every token you decide you want to, uh, to go back to the community, four tokens is one cocoa tree and uh, that will be planted again. So that closes the loop, right? And, and the idea behind this, and I think this is fantastic because this can be translated to other value chains and, and other firms no? and other businesses. The idea is companies spend billions of dollars every year on marketing. If we instead of doing that, invest that money into going back to the communities that have been producing a commodity, uh, you can have this uh, direct impact. No, And the marketing budget is way, way higher than what has been calculated needed for ending poverty. So it's a way of also as a consumer saying, OK, I'm, I'm contributing to, to this. No?
1: So one of the biggest news stories of 2019, 2020 is destruction in the Amazon rainforest. And a lot of people call it the lung of the earth because it does help to pull carbon dioxide out of the air and push oxygen back into the air. What is the effect that this chocolate project is having directly on environmentalism and particularly the Amazon?
3: And I would say it's not only the the lungs of the earth, it's definitely also vital for, for Latin American agriculture, for instance. Uh, You know, you've changed the microclimate or the mesoclimate between the Amazon and the rest of the the region, and uh, you have havoc in different agricultural systems uh, throughout the region. So this is a huge, huge threat. Paying more for these types of commodities that maintain the rainforest uh, are the way of also saving uh, the planet and uh, taking very direct climate action.
1: I'm curious how often... Climate is part of the conversation in every step of this process, from the farming practices to the packaging to the transportation. How often do you bring the conversation of climate and carbon emissions into this? You know, we
3: have a lot of projects as UNDP and in the Amazon. We have a large, large program called Pro Amazonia that we work with together with the Ministry of Environment and the Ministry of Agriculture. It's a project funded by the Global Environmental Facility and the Green Climate Fund. And a very large part of the project goes towards working with commodities that are the main deforesters of the Amazon. What are the main crops that deforest the Amazon? It's um, cacao, it's coffee, it's livestock, and it's palm. So we're working with those four commodity value chains to see if producers can, can change their production practices. It is really interesting because this connects, this, this work with different commodities, it connects to the global market.
1: Definitely. Do you think we are at a place where we can apply both the blockchain technology and this idea of the tokens to the industries that you just mentioned, to livestock, palm oil, et cetera?
3: Absolutely, and this is something we're doing as UNDP uh, uh, globally. Um, so instead of calling it the other bar, which is the name of our chocolate, uh, it's now called the other way. And the idea is that we would be able to offer a platform for companies uh, to trace their products and ensure consumers that their sourcing is uh, sustainable. So absolutely, I mean, this is this could be a game changer.
1: <laughs> I love this project because. It's a perfect balance between real concrete change that's being made, but making it really accessible to the individual and making it really clear and understandable for them to see the impact that their small action is making. And so I really love that. And I so appreciate the time today talking through this project. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Adam. You're welcome to visit the, the webpage. It's quite interesting also to see your, the, the chocolate you're eating. What is the journey that chocolate has had?
1: That is great. You know, storytelling tends to convince people much more than, you know, facts and figures.
3: Totally, totally.
1: Amazing. As the final guest of this season, we have the incredible Leslie Wright a media and advocacy advisor at the UNDP. She has so many stories about people, potential, and the idea of local wisdom. She also leaves us with a very positive outlook for the future, and now more than ever, I really appreciate that. So, Leslie, the Sustainable Development Goals, we've talked about them in, I think, every single episode of this podcast, and yet there is something that we have not talked about and it's the idea of development, and I'm really curious about your definition of development. You've worked in so many different places. How would you define development? That's
0: such a huge question. Thank you for asking that. That one's a big <laughs> one. Um, I think development is at its most fundamental about potential. Uh, it's a process. It unlocks people's potential. So at the core, also is is people. So we have seven and a half billion people around the world. They're in different countries, different socioeconomic groups, different situations in their lives. But at the core, we have a baseline agreement that every single person is equal. And everyone is deserving of opportunities that everybody else has, that their neighbors have, that somebody in a different country has. So to me, development is about realizing people's potential um, to live a healthy, dignified life. It's the work that the UN Development Program does. We're the, the biggest UN agency, and our mandate is development and we unpack the complexities of it in practice. So, but I think for your listeners to understand, it really is about unlocking potential. So you mentioned the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. We have a decade of action left. So they expire 2030, but we know the work will continue after that. But the SDGs, and I encourage your listeners really to go and, and look at them, uh, figure out what they are, learn about them, check out what they can do, towards the SDGs in their own houses, in their communities, in their regions and their countries. But the SDGs are about poverty, about the planet, about institutions. It's, it's about these big issues facing the planet, but they're all connected. So you can't just pluck one out and then deal with it. So development really is about that whole picture, the, the global goals that we call them as one big thing. And underneath absolutely all of that is people. I know we talk about people and planet, but it's people and potential. And so I think that's development to me. At the core of it is humanity and its people.
1: That was an unbelievable answer. And (laughs) it's so funny because I think about development a lot in my academic work. And I think about development as we've been recording these episodes. And development means different things in different spaces. You know, so I'm looking at The difference between individual development, community development, and then there's this whole other side of development language that's used in the corporate and business space, you know, business development and corporation development. So development, like you said, is this idea of interconnectivity and potential for individuals, and it can be done in so many different ways.
0: I completely agree with that. I think that's a good way to look at it. And I take it sort of one step further as a communications uh, expert in this field that I'm engaging with people. I'm not engaging with projects. So when I look at development, I'm looking at the faces of people. I'm going to be speaking with people and I'm going to try to draw out that what this development means to that community, how it's going to impact the wider health and wealth of that community. And that's what the SDGs also look at. The global goals look at that and the interconnectedness of it. SDG 15 check or SDG 13, sorry, 15, I think is life underwater, I have to check, SDG SDG 13, (laughs) which is climate action. It is about, let's say, gender, uh, gender equality. It's SDG 5. It's about poverty, SDG 1. It could potentially be about sustainable energy. It could be about the institutions. So I think that this is kind of what I mean about the interconnectedness, but also that people are the fundamental part of that.
1: I couldn't agree more. And this idea of individual and people... I want to talk a little bit about that because the U.N. Development Program as an organization has, you know, incredibly creative projects and some of which we've heard about already. But like you say, at its core, it's focused on people and helping other countries to help their people. So how does the UNDP balance its work at the country level? with helping individuals and those faces that you say that you look at when you're working in development?
0: That's another excellent question. UNDP, <laughs> the development program, it is, it, it's the integrator in the UN family. We just celebrated for the United Nations 75 years. For UNDP, we're turning 55 next year. So for 55 years, the development program's been around the world. We're in 170 countries and territories. We're not just in the capital cities, we are in the most remote areas, we are in some of the places that other people don't go. And we've been there a long time and we've been building these relationships, not just with the people that we live beside and work for and work with, but also obviously the government, which is incredibly important to everything that we do. But the civil society groups, the youth groups, the community leaders, the religious leaders, the religious communities, the the movers and shakers, development partners because of this network, this vast network around this planet and the work that we've done for half a century, our added value is that we are the convener and the integrator. So we can bring people together. We can see what sort of the gaps and the opportunities and we bring them together and we move that forward. So I think there's just one quick example to explain how this works in practice in Nepal. For the past 20 years, UNDP, Australia and the government of Nepal have put together a small micro enterprise development project. It's called MEDEP. So I encourage your listeners to check it out. I won't do it justice necessarily, but this is about giving micro enterprise ideas, some seed funding, some marketplaces, some policy at the national and the local level for small business owners to move forward. And in Nepal, I don't know if you've ever been to Nepal. No, I've not. No? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Nepal is, uh, you get to Kathmandu, it's a big city, but To get anywhere else is very difficult. The terrain is quite difficult, and 80% of Nepal lives outside of Kathmandu. So going to the shops, going to the markets is difficult when you get outside, and poverty was quite high 20 years ago, and it's slowly chipping down, we're chipping down on that. And this micro-enterprise project was so incredibly successful, and it was a small idea that grew and grew, and the benefits were undeniable. Over time, it wasn't just a quick fix. So it was about actually staying and developing this idea and this concept for micro-enterprise, individual people that are on the, the cusp of poverty, trying to give some kind of economic opportunity that is, is also community-based and uh, about the people at the corner of it. And so what happened over 20 years was that it was so successful, half a million people were brought out of poverty as a result of the investment of Australia, the ideas and partnership with the government, and the United Nations Development Program with all of our experts so over 20 years you have this remarkable impact so much so that the government has now fully taken over it fully put it through the whole country it's part of the program and UNDP was part of that bringing things and ideas and people together for that and one of the cool things about this project is that in 2017 there was a local election which hadn't been held for some time. And almost 400 people who are direct beneficiaries of this up, this micro enterprise project actually built the confidence and the leadership skills to run for local government and 400 people won. And now they are serving their communities in a different capacity than their small enterprises. And we are talking about the most remote communities and women that perhaps their husbands have gone overseas for work and they're by themselves. They're taking care of whole communities. Now, in decision-making roles for their local communities. And I think that's just absolutely spectacular. And this is that idea of the power of UNDP to bring people together and bring ideas together.
1: That is an amazing story. And we talk about this a lot on the podcast, this idea of how different kind of lanes in society merge and work together. And This is a perfect example of how the UNDP has helped to facilitate this relationship between eliminating poverty and inequality, helping to build the corporate space and then allowing that the people who have helped to build that corporate space, take their expertise and bring it into the government, which can then in turn help other people out of inequality and poverty. And it builds this cycle of development which is incredible. This is such a great example.
0: I really liked seeing it firsthand. So even just going to these really, really small communities and seeing how even just a little seed funding or access to a loan actually helps. And the cool thing about the people that make up this project is right after the earthquake, a lot of them were impacted in those really dense areas that, that were impacted by the earthquakes in 2015. And immediately the MetUp people created a hotline for each other. They know who's out there, created this cool hotline. And we're like, what happened to you? Are you safe? Is your family safe? What's going on with your business? And what do you need? Do you need a cell phone? Do you need some money? Do do we need to rebuild the market? And immediately there was a self-sustaining kind of community level drive to respond to this earthquake and its devastation. So it was it was really quite humbling to watch this happen in practice. So when you go back to your studies, this is the actual tangible results of those theoretical conversations and learnings that are happening at that level.
1: We need more of that in academia. We need more of those partnerships between the academic space and the work that the UNDP is doing on the ground with individuals. Because... One really does inform the other, and I feel like I'm going to take these stories and apply them to my academic work. And I think just more collaboration, the better. Agreed. You told an amazing story about Nepal, but you've also worked in so many other countries, and I'm reading because I didn't memorize them. (laughs) Sri Lanka, Liberia, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, the Philippines, Indonesia, and others. These are such different types of communities that you've worked in, how often is the work that you're doing universal that you could apply into all these different communities that you're going into, and how often is it a really localized, specific approach?
0: That's a very interesting question, because this is something, part of the work that I do is crisis work, so responding in crisis situations. And I think that this is a very good question that the development community and the humanitarian community need to reflect on, because I think that sometimes you have a good idea, you think it's a panacea, and that it's going to be replicated and do the same thing for the same results. And that's not often the case. The fundamentals genuinely stay the same. And I'll give you an example shortly. But I think that what Development practitioners and us in this community need to take stock of where we are at every moment in our action. So when we are on the ground and we are doing something in in a meaningful way, we can't just plow ahead and say, well, this worked over there, so it should work over here and not realizing potentially, for example, in Nepal, a huge number of men aren't there. There's a missing generation of people because they've gone to work overseas. Therefore, some of the work needs to be shifted to address the demographics and also the needs. So that's sort of a a generic answer to that. But I, an example of the fundamentals that work, my first job with the United Nations, and it was the development program a decade ago, <laughs> <laughs> um, was in Banda Aceh, in Aceh and Nias, which is in Indonesia. And it is the place that suffered the Indian Ocean tsunami, earthquake and tsunami in 2004. And of course, I showed up five years later, but the devastation was still there. For the most part, You could still see the impact. But this program that UNDP underwent, and it was a decade long program, started in the early days, right after this devastating tsunami, and it was a waste management project. And so its first role was to clear debris, give access to humanitarians, the government, the armies, the responders to save people's lives. Mm -hmm. That moved into the next phase, which was about. Uh, waste management, so where do we put all this stuff, and how do we make sure that people are safe from debris and waste, and where are you going to set up a waste management facility the the dump sites were all torn away, and then finally, in the last stage before it closed down, it was about. A longer term sustainable waste management program, which i'm a bit of a nerd i didn't know anything about it beforehand, but i 'm absolutely in it. I know all about leachate systems and uh, you know international waste management sites and it 's crazy wow. and recycling and so a <laughs> nerd alert, but I think uh, <laughs> the first step was that rubble removal. Flash forward to 2013, and Typhoon Haiyan, or Yolanda, as they called it in the Philippines, came through and absolutely wiped out uh, Leyte province. Uh, It was devastating. But when we landed on the ground, and I was there within the first week, we saw the same situation, rubble, debris, we had to take action. And my colleague who was with me that I did meet in uh, Aceh during my couple of years in Aceh, he was then in Tacloban with me. And we were looking out at the debris and the problems facing this area. We knew what we did in Aceh in terms of waste management, and we knew that we were at a starting point, and everything we did today will have an impact. 10, 15 years down the road. So we need to make good decisions using the knowledge we learned in Aceh, in Indonesia, to then implement here for the big scale. And obviously, we needed to take stock at every step and see what the cultural and the geographical and the political climate was for this kind of action. So we needed to learn and do things a little bit differently. But for the most part, we used our institutional knowledge to address those same things. So I think that's an important reflection for that kind of story, please, practitioners, pause, take stock, look at what you're doing, look at the impact, and and just make sure that you're not uh, neglecting people, neglecting ideas, going in the wrong direction. It's okay, you know, to stop and rethink and go forward in a different direction. And we do that at UNDP.
1: Culture is something that a lot of people push to the side, and especially Indigenous culture. They have been around far longer than we have. They have come up with solutions to problems in the climate space, in the development space, in the access space that have worked for them for such a long time. And they have so many solutions that we can be learning from. And there, I've come across so many development projects that look at social repercussions and look at economic repercussions, look at civil repercussions, look at political repercussions, but do not look at cultural repercussions. So the fact that the UNDP really takes this seriously, and you in particular when you're going into a place looking at the cultural issues that are happening and specifically looking at indigenous cultures and how they can be affected by climate-related disasters and crises like the work that you do, and even other development projects is so unbelievably important.
0: It is. You're absolutely correct, and I think an indication of that is even going back to Achenias was the earthquake itself in 2004. The epicenter was near an island called Similu, and when the water started to recede, I think Similu only had two deaths in the earthquake and the tsunami. They saw the water recede, and local wisdom on Similu Island was higher ground. People, when the water pushes out, you go to higher ground. But that message. It's called local wisdom. It didn't translate to the rest of the island and to, to Aceh itself in the province. Um, and so the, the devastation was harsher. And I think in the recovery phases right after, it was about maximizing local wisdom and sharing it. It was about listening to local stories. What is your wisdom? When the wind turns this way, do you lift your rice up to the second level of your barn? You know, like there's, it's not all science that we can understand as development practitioners. It's about implementing local wisdom and marrying that with modern technology. So I think, yeah, you're absolutely correct.
1: So you must have so many stories from all these different places. Would you mind sharing one or two more inspiring stories for us?
0: So I said earlier on in the in the show that it was about people. And so the thing I love the most about my job is that I'm sent to places around the world I meet the most interesting people and I get to work in service of the most amazing people and I get to sit in their homes at some of the most devastating times of their lives as well. So I'm invited in when a crisis has happened, maybe they're at their lowest and at their most vulnerable. And so one, I kind of carry the people with me (laughs) as I go forward. I think about them often and one of them is from northeast Nigeria. So her, her name is Falmata. She's over 60. I'd say she was 60 when I met her, and that was in 2017. And this is in the northeast of the country. And they had struggled through the Boko Haram crisis, where Boko Haram's insurgency was quite a violent and dramatic one, and her village was completely destroyed. In 2014, Boko Haram came on market day, so there was even more people coming from the outlying areas to her village, and they destroyed it, and they killed so many people, and they physically hurt Falmata as well, she was an elderly woman at the time. And she escaped with her life, as did the people I had met with her at that time. And they fled to the city, which was close by, and they ended up living in a camp for displaced people where she had then been living for for two years by the time I met her. Falmata is the most remarkable woman I have ever met, apart from my own mother, in my life. Falmata is so powerful and so determined and so wonderful. She is the matriarch of her village. She brings women together. She carries their pain and their stories and their ideas and their passions. And she translates it to development Uh, like for us, for UNDP people, but also to local government. What do women need here? What do we want? What are we doing? What are our kids doing? And Falmata leads that charge. And UNDP at the time conducted a stabilization project. We wanted to start rebuilding her village called Nguam. And one of the most important moments of my relationship with Famate was when we went back to her village which was completely destroyed you could still see bullet holes the place was razed there was still bombs that had been unexploded and we were walking through this area and Boko Haram was still a threat at this point and she took me to her house what used to be her house and this was her water jug and it's shattered but it's still there two years later she's like this is my house I'm standing on it and it's gone. And it was traumatic. It was hard to watch. It was hard to listen to her stories. But knowing where she was then going to go after that, that will stick with me, I think, for a very long time. She's a remarkable woman. And even with the rebuilding, she was very much like, why do we, our houses only have one room? We need two rooms. We need bigger houses. We have kids. You know, <laughs> she was she was amazing. So, yeah, Falmata will always stay with me. She's incredible.
1: What an inspiring story. And, you know, you've now told three or four stories about people around the world in so many different communities. And one of the biggest things this year that has affected people is COVID-19. And it's not, it's not a local problem, as we know. COVID-19 has obviously impacted development around the world. It has created so much poverty, and it has taken us off track from when we were hoping to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. And I know that still is the goal, but it is gonna be much harder now that COVID-19 has ravaged so many different communities across the world. Realistically, where do you think we are right now and what can we do to try and get ourselves back on track?
0: Well, I think as the time that we're recording this, we had some good news this morning about vaccinations and the potential for a vaccine that might be ready to go. I know this is outside of my my mandate. I don't know anything about vaccines, but I was heartened to hear that. I think we're closer to a solution than we think. And I echo the uh, the Secretary General's idea that the vaccine has to be distributed equally. We have to make sure that the people who need it the most get it first, the, the people who are the most vulnerable get it first and that everybody gets it first, not just the rich ones or the ones that are living in higher development countries that have access to very good health care and sanitation and this and that, but that we make sure that it's an equitable and free <laughs> distribution for this vaccine. We are in this together. This pandemic is about every single person on the planet, rich, poor, every single person. So I think when we look at at what COVID and this pandemic and our responses to it around the world, yes, it has set back development. We were making tremendous progress with poverty reduction and elimination and gender equality and the climate. We were pushing forward on what we call the global goals. We'd have to speed it up, but we were getting there. And the pandemic came and wiped out some of our trajectory forward and really stopped the momentum in its tracks. What we are doing now and what I'm seeing around the world inside UNDP, looking outside, is that there are countries that are injecting millions and billions and trillions of dollars into stabilizing economies, stabilizing people. I'm in Canada right now and we had a temporary basic income here that prevented people from interacting outside of the home that could be a stopgap between not being able to work and protecting us from the virus and and catching the virus. This is a concept that other countries are putting in action, which is a huge deal. And it makes a huge impact. So right now, what we're trying to do is stabilize the global economies, not just globally, but also regionally and inside your country and, and inside your communities. And I think that that's happening. It's not pie in the sky. It's not perfect. But I think that's one of the things that can prevent us from falling off the edge. And I think the last thing I want to say about COVID itself is a personal thing. It's an individual action. We know how we can stop this virus in its tracks in our homes, in our communities, and that is wear a mask, Wash your hands properly and frequently and try to maintain physical distance from each other for now. This is hard, it's emotional, it's difficult, but we can do it. And I think above all, everything else, it's about kindness. We need to practice compassion and we need to be kind with each other. Tempers flare. Our worries are at the front of our minds every time we leave our front door. We need to practice kindness to ourselves and to everybody else that we encounter on a daily basis. Then we'll get through it.
1: I don't know if you did this intentionally, but you ended this season in the same way we started, talking about universal basic income and temporary basic income with our very first guest this season. And you added something to it, which is this idea of, kindness. And I would add to it, respect, because there's something about that, that is beyond science, beyond law, beyond policy, that brings us back to this idea of, you know, Rousseau's social contract, this idea of humanity and individual people. And there is something about kindness that should not be overlooked. And even all these other things that we've talked about this whole season at the core of them needs to be this respect for each other as humans.
0: I firmly agree with you. That is absolutely it. Adam, thank you so much for having me on your show. I think that was that made me feel better. <laughs> Practicing kindness, it's a small gesture, but it's going to change change a lot.
1: Thank you so much, Leslie. I really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you, Adam.
1: Thanks so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, please visit sustainablepartnersinc.org slash donate. Also, follow us on Instagram at sustainable.partners. Today's episode was engineered by Drew Alsbrook, produced and edited by Shelby Kaufman, and executive produced by Sustainable Partners Inc. I'm your host, Adam Mett, and thanks for listening to Planet Reimagined.